I, uh, 30 years ago, I, I came to this country and, and was really struck by uh, how um, lively and full churches seem to be, how my identity as an ordained person to, seemed to be something to which people were deferential in daily life. You know, if I went to the supermarket wearing a clergy shirt, you know, there would be sort of smiles and how are you, father, and all this sort of stuff. Um, and it was really like coming to another world. It was a world that was still religious. And across that time, I think uh, the United States has sort of hit a couple of hurdles or walls of secularization. I mean, for, for me, one of them was the 9-11 experience, and we could say more about that. And then I think the COVID experience will probably have proven to be another one as well, where, where change doesn't always happen by sort of slow, easy development, but sometimes by quantum steps, as it were, where people start to ask themselves difficult questions about what about this religiosity that we've been assuming is a part of the social fabric of our lives? Is this really going to persist? Uncommon Good, the podcast where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. My name is Paul Reese. Fam, I am delighted to bring you today on the show the very Reverend Dean Andrew McGowan. So many honorifics, so many great cups of coffee, and gently, painstakingly baked loaves of bread. Andrew McGowan is the Dean and President of Berkeley Divinity School and the McFadden Professor of Anglican Studies and Pastoral Theology at Yale Divinity School. Content warning off the top. We talk about the death of a parent. We make indirect references to colonialism, indirect references to white privilege. We talk about some of the impacts of COVID on the world outside of the United States. And we do talk a bit about Christian hegemony. So as always, if these things are not right for you to listen to, feel free and switch this one off and we will catch you in the next one. Going on, we talk about Anglican sacramental theology, secularization, negotiating international COVID protocols, the importance of a good loaf of bread baked well and slow, and a strong cup of coffee. It was such a privilege to sit under this man's tutelage and to catch up a little bit in November 2022. Please enjoy my conversation with Andrew McGowan. I'm not sure. I'm not sure um, what is an appropriate title to call you, given that I've been your student formerly. So uh, should it be Dean McGowan? Should it be... Um, Dr. McGow should be the Reverend Doctor, very, very Reverend Doctor. Well, and Andrew also, Andrew also works. Uh, <laughs> in, in fact, this this is an interesting sort of cross-cultural reality for me that yeah. um, Australians are sort of by choice and commitment relatively casual, and it's very common even in higher education scenes, not so much in secondary, but in a higher education scene for teacher and student to be on first name terms. And I, yeah. I would typically encourage my students who've graduated to treat me in that respect. But it's also something I'm quite conscious of. I, I would perhaps naturally just sort of think of students as people who are, of course, as adults, uh, might might think of me as Andrew and them as, as Jane. But I, I, I've come to sort of respect and negotiate the American sensibilities around that as something that I need to be you know, respectful of. Yeah. 
and um, I, I saw a, a colleague, an Australian colleague, who's on his way to a big international meeting in this country that I'm going to in a few days, and his tweet accompanying this, and yes, it was still on that other platform, <laughs> you know, was something like, well, now I'm getting ready for a week of being called Dr. So-and-so. Yeah. Because yeah. in his own institution, he's always just Mick or whatever it is. Um, yes. So uh, while Andrew, Andrew is good for these purposes, but it also touches on some some interesting questions about how we negotiate even the subtle cultural differences between U.S. society and Australian society, quite apart from other differences. I mean, we can lean into that. Would Would you care to say say a bit more? Well, Australia and the United States are so similar in in many respects, and yet the points of difference are also interesting. I, I have likened it more than once in talking to people before to to uh, peeling an onion by layer that one one finds layers of similarity or, or just pure sameness alternating with layers of difference yeah. I think that Australians and people from North America generally find it really generally quite easy to move into each other's circles and yeah enjoy each other, in fact, in some ways, perhaps because there is this hint of difference in the way they approach things, and yet enough affinity and similarity that they don't feel it's such hard work to experience what is a bit of the other in, in, in the other person. So, um, I mean, it, it's, it's always more interesting to be an Australian in the United States than to be an Australian, <laughs> let's put it that way. There is just this hint of exoticism that I'm sure that I uh, ma managed to dine out on in, in one way or another. Um, but also those moments where I sort of scratch my head and think, really? Uh, you know, I don't understand that very well. And, and, you, and you, might, you might well imagine, I mean, this, this perhaps also changes topics, but I found, of course, that there are increasingly many of my uh, U.S. friends and colleagues have found themselves yeah. experience, experiencing forms of otherness in yeah. the development of political and social culture of the last five years or whatever it has been. So I don't, I'm not the only person that I deal with who sometimes feels like a stranger in a strange land as I look at some of the weirdness of, of our contemporary discourses and conversations. But um, being someone who is not a citizen, you know, there are some ways that affects me from day to day. I, I think I also tweeted uh, recently, uh, because we're speaking close to an election season, uh, don't mind me, I'm just here, over here being taxed and not represented. You know, so <laughs> um, so I, I sit in this curious fashion to these uh, processes of the wider political and social sphere. And in the yeah. political ones, I don't have a direct stake by definition as a non-citizen. Um, and yet, of course, I have so many of the privileges that are accorded to citizens in this country, and of course, in particular, to citizens who have the sort of demography and appearance that I have. Yeah. There are other American citizens who don't have the privileges I have. Um, and when people think of the ways that non-citizens struggle in the US, they're usually dealing with things which I don't have to confront quite so directly. I have had my experiences with US immigration processes that haven't been particularly um, you know, life-giving it edifying too. That makes me yeah. more sympathetic to those who don't have some of the other privileges that help me to negotiate those, I guess. You're essentially Washington, D.C. or Puerto Rico. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, I, and, I, and perhaps I can choose between the two depending on the kind of activity I want to take part in. The, yeah. the, the music and the cuisine are going to be more interesting in Puerto Rico. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Um, do you have a favorite flavor of arepa, since we're talking about Puerto Rico? Oh, interesting. Um, arepas are, of course, something one finds even on the streets of New Haven, which yes. is not a bad sort of uh, street cuisine. I, I'm actually the sort of person that finds it difficult to make decisions like that. It, it, more if I'm standing at the food truck with the arepas on sale, or if I'm in a restaurant with a physical menu, 
Um, the problem for me is more that I will have changed my mind by the time the person takes my order <laughs> from whatever I started with, because I'm I'm almost uh, I'm I'm almost fervently omnivorous, I, I guess to say. I, I I usually want to try something not unlike many people. I want to try something I wouldn't cook at home, yeah. but but even more perhaps than some other people, I want to try something I've never had before, something mm -hmm. that I wouldn't do otherwise. But I. Um, I find you know any and all of the sort of flavors are likely to fill an arepa with uh, likely likely to tempt me on a given day. Mm. Would you ever find you're you're well known in many circles? Um, I I uncovered um, I, I I was chagrined to learn that I was not um, the inauguration of your podcast career, um, but that you you taped an episode of the Joycast back in 2019 about bread and about connections to ancient um, ways of being and ancient grains, and anyone should go and check it. Um, would would the would the would the thought of ever doing primarily masa and corn-based breads ever be a line of inquiry or has ever been a line of inquiry for you? Yes, um, it has and a, a little more generally again, although not, not to avoid those ones because they are particularly interesting, especially in this environment where they're, they're sort of more closer to being indigenous. Yeah. Um, I, I do have an interest that I haven't really uh, barely begun to explore about uh, non-glutinous grains and their uses more generally um, because there, there were two or three angles which I think are very interesting for those materials. One is I, I think perhaps the one you were hinting at from the fact that these are potentially the foods of indigenous groups in yeah. this part of the world and in some others. Yeah. Um, uh, but also, um, I'm, I'm working now on a project for a, an academic lecture next year, which will actually be part of a conference that the ISM, the Institute of Sacred Music here at Yale, is um, sponsoring in June next year about the economics and the materiality of liturgy. Mm -hmm. and, and the topic that I'm wanting to sort of pursue is the question of glutinous and non-glutinous breads and the Eucharist. There's, there's, there's a particular controversy that, that Roman Catholics are most caught up in but which I think is of interest to all of us, where the Roman Catholic Church insists that the bread of the Eucharist must contain gluten, even if in microscopic quantities. They're sort of trying to thread a needle here between the fact that they know that there are people who can't or shouldn't eat glutinous foods and the fact that they want, I think, to maintain a sort of fidelity to the historical tradition of Jesus at the Last Supper, being a faithful Jew who would have eaten matzah that would have been made from wheat. But um, I actually think we don't know whether or not it was made from wheat. And so one of the things that I'm going to explore in this is the grains that rabbis reflected about, uh, about what was allowable for Passover and what wasn't, and the relationship between those grains and the quality of fermentation, yeah. um, which is getting us a little bit away from masa and from um, uh, flatbreads, if we can use that generic term to think about right. the things we're likely to produce with non-glutinous grains. But it, it circles back again, as you can probably hear, and I am interested in the questions that arise, for instance, for peoples of different cultures who are thinking not just about, for instance, if, if we're talking about Christian contexts in which people want to engage in Eucharistic celebration, there is this concern which the Roman Catholic controversy is reflecting a proper concern to my mind about how we connect historically, diachronically with the meal of Jesus yeah. and the Last Supper and yeah. his food ways, and then how we connect with the food ways of more recent and even current realities. There are parts of the world where 
wheat bread is not a staple food and some parts of the world where it's even quite difficult to find. Yes, um, yes. And what does, what does the Eucharist constitute in those settings? I, I don't have a glib answers to that. I, I will never um, condemn people who take decisions that might be different from the ones I would choose myself, but I think how to find a place where we can acknowledge both fidelity to a historical tradition um, and, and some acknowledgement <coughs> of the fact that we always contextualize those things. I mean, if you look at the things that we eat and drink in most modern Western or particularly North American Eucharistic contexts today, they don't really look all that much like stuff I imagine Jesus has at the Last Supper in first century you know, Judea. Yeah. Um, they're, they're very much contextualized through medieval and then further modern developments. And that applies whether you're sort of doing something that looks very high church Catholic and pious or whether you do something that looks very low church with little glasses and grape juice because, you know, Mr. Welch hadn't invented the pasteurization of grape juice in the first century either. So that's, that's just... And ironically, speaking of North American cuisines, um, the, the wonder in Wonder Bread seem, seems to be perhaps the most artificially produce that one could consider. Yes, it's it's absolutely as much a sort of attenuated artifact as the medieval wafer that, that you know, Roman Catholic and, and many Episcopalian contexts would find use for the Eucharist, which, which is the point at which I have to mention the old joke around here that our um, lamented uh, former liturgy professor Aidan Kavanagh, mm -hmm. who, who was here sort of through much of the 70s and 80s, uh, had an, an inimitable style and was apparently wont to say, you know, students, the problem with the Eucharistic bread of the moment is not believing that it's the body of Christ. <laughs> it's believing that it's bread. <laughs> I, I mean, there, there are so many things. Um, believing that, uh, you, you could say the same of chocolate uh, or, or coffee. Well, yes, yeah. so compared to the sort of earlier versions of products made from those same substances, yeah. you mean? Is that what you're yeah. thinking of there? Yeah. yeah, because when you read historic accounts of how uh, indigenous American peoples pr pr produce chocolate products, for instance, they don't look like something you would get in Starbucks today. <laughs> Coffee, no, I'm less no, familiar with what the earlier sort of forms of, of brewing and generation would have been. But yeah, <laughs> me too. Um, my 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 best uh, exposure to the long histories and traditions of coffee come from behind the green apron. So I know yeah. virtually nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you you. You have this incredible thread weaving through so much of your work of juxtaposing the the old and the new, find, finding ways of of holding the two in tension. How appropriate we're Anglicans. Um, I wonder, in spaces like that, I've been doing a lot of thinking most recently about the. The, the slowly dwindling physical footprint and perhaps even moral authority of the Anglican Church in the northern provinces. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if we can chat a bit about for the, the rector at home, mm -hmm. uh, the, the rector of, of a small typical parish mm -hmm. um, who's living in the, the reality of the, our, our world today, whether that's the North American Episcopal Church, whether that's the Church of England. Mm -hmm. I, I know much less about, about the Anglican Church in New Zealand and Australia, but where, but where we see these old and new questions being very uncannily reflected 
in the physical reality of numbers mm -hmm. and tithes mm -hmm. and crumbling buildings. Yes. I wonder if we can if we can think a little bit about that together. I don't yeah. have a specific question. No. Um, you just seem like w one of my one one of my colleagues who who has done some thinking. Yeah, it's true, and and. I think, by the way, we could easily lump the Australian and New Zealand churches in with the phenomenon you're referring to, uh, in some ways perhaps a bit closer to the Church of England's version of this than to yeah. the US Episcopal churches, but there are certainly commonalities across all of them. But you're right that I've thought about it, and um, one thing I've said uh, once or twice in the past to people in North America when we're thinking about the future of the church and where it's going, I say, I come from the future, mm. because the Australian church um, I think of all of those, perhaps the New Zealand church as well, <clears throat> is in some ways further along that path, path of dealing with what it's going to be to exist in the realm of a, a much more secular society than the one in the United States. Britain and the Church of England and the United States are different from one another, but they have in common a, a sort of patrimony of religious affiliation and cultural deference towards religion which is going to take longer to diffuse but it's still going to diffuse so I'm confident of that. The Australia I grew up in you know had some some big churches on um, the corners of, of the big you know city blocks and so forth but right. I found myself as a, a schoolboy even scratching my head about the fact that how come I was the only person in my class who went to church. Uh, my, my own upbringing was uh, devout, my father was a priest um, and so the church has always been a part of my own identity. But that identity was, even from my uh, youth in the 60s and 70s, one which was looked as if it belonged to a world which had already passed away. And so the process of secularization, I think, in Australia and New Zealand, and to some extent also in, in, in Europe, including the UK, I think is more advanced than in the United States. When I first came to this country, which was 30, 30 years ago, to start. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, that's the, the microphone. Can we cut that? <laughs> the, micro, the microphone's cut out there for that's a right, moment. That's right. um, congratulations on your associate that's professor right. position. <laughs> I, um, I, uh, 30 years ago, I, I came to this country and, and was really struck by uh, how um, lively and full churches seem to be, how my identity as an ordained person to, seemed to be something to which people were deferential in daily life. You know, if I went to the supermarket wearing a clergy shirt, you know, there would be sort of smiles and how are you, father, and all this sort of stuff. Um, and it was really like coming to another world. It was a world that was still religious. And across that time, I think uh, the United States has sort of hit a couple of hurdles or walls of secularization. I mean, for, for me, one of them was the 9-11 experience, and we could say more about that. And then I think the COVID experience will probably have proven to be another one as well, where, where change doesn't always happen by sort of slow, easy development, but sometimes by quantum steps, as it were, where people start to ask themselves difficult questions about what about this religiosity that we've been assuming is a part of the social fabric of our lives? Is this really going to persist? Um, I've just been teaching this semester the class on the history of the prayer book at Berkeley, uh, yes. which is, which yes, is yes. now part of my role as things have shifted around and, and our esteemed colleague Brian Spinks has retired. And so grateful uh, for his many years of service and the brilliance of his, his, of his scholarship. A person of great erudition and, and I sort of, of course, this is one of the moments where even someone of my relative uh, age you know, can dig deep and find imposter syndrome returning back to, to haunt me. But, but one of the things that I've been exploring with the students of the class this year is how 
the origins of the movement for liturgical change in the 20th century were in some respects fueled by recognition at the end of the First World War in Europe that maybe the, the, the gig was up. You know, that, mm. that, in, that in England you see people coming back from the trenches after the First World War and the horror that had been experienced there and quite a number of quite significant Anglican theologians of the period realizing that, that Christendom had in effect broken, that the experiences yeah. that so many of the people they had, you know, shared cigarettes with in the trenches and so forth had broken the, the sort of the remaining facade of, of, of a sense that, you know, the, the, the church and the, the, the nobility, aristocracy, yeah. you know, so, sort of things people can see going on if they watch Downton Abbey, for instance, <laughs> sort of in a, a gentle, historical, soapy kind of fashion. You can see that world starting to come apart at the seams. Yeah. And while that particular TV series didn't deal so much with the religious dimension, that was very much a part of the experience of the Church of England during the 20s and 30s. And this, there's, there's a, a, a long conceptual loop to prescribe here, but I'll try and come to it in a nutshell. I think that one of the reasons that we began revising our liturgies in the 20th century was because of a recognition earlier in the 20th century that the game had changed and that the church needed liturgies not for an established reality in which religiosity and church going was simply a part of the fabric of everybody's lives, but for a world in which Christian identity would start to become something which was unusual again. Now that process of recognition was I think interrupted by the second war and by the baby boomer generation and the fact that everybody in the 1950s seemed to want to do everything. You know, so the bowling leagues as well as churches got a great boost out of the ways in which, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a swing back towards association with religion, not so much, I think, because of a profound growth in religious understanding and belief, but because there was this upsurge of the need to connect and to create social bonds among yeah. people. But I think that kind of insulated the Episcopal Church and other U.S. religious institutions from the bigger trajectory that was still on the march through that period. Mm. Because the secular is now basically shaking us by the shoulders and saying, hey, you know it's over, don't you? And yet I find that many clergy and many laity haven't really got to the point of thinking that that's something that they need to deal with or have to accept. I'm, I'm not quite sure of the right way to frame that because right. it's not easy news. But the writing has been on the wall for a hundred years. It's just that we've had these interim periods when it seemed that things were going sufficiently well that we could just sort of hold them at arm's length. So my, to come back to your original question, the thing that I would say to the rector watching the podcast is to say, how are we going to um, think about what authentic Christian discipleship means in a world that probably doesn't care that much anymore? Uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, one of the reasons that I um, took myself into the realm of patristic studies back as a doctoral student 30 years yeah. ago. Patristic, just to define our terms for, yes. for folks outside of, Please. Outside of um, an academic theological context, yes. we're probably talking about some of the early theologians, writers, the, the early clergy. Christian period of that sort of, well, you know, let's lay anything from the second through to the fifth or sixth centuries. Perfect. But the thing that, the thing that uh, made me think that this was an area that I wanted to spend some time in yeah. studying was eff effectively this, that we now stand at the time when the bonds between church and society that were being constructed during the course of the fourth century in particular, when Constantine becomes the emperor of Rome, when Theodosius, his successor at yeah. the end of the fourth century, decides that Christianity is the official religion of the empire 
And even though we've been talking sort of negatively about Constantine for a few decades now because he was a bit of a rascal, we haven't yet really come to terms with the ways in which Christian identity is now going backwards. So I think we're dealing with the possibility of, of a church that's more like that of the second and third centuries than a church like that of the fourth and following centuries, which is what we've all gotten used to. And for me, to recover some of the aspects of Christian authenticity and Christian distinctiveness is one of the yeah. challenges that we face in this current moment. Yeah. That was a long answer to that question. But a, but a wonderful one. Um, I, I think we can spend the rest of our time just sort of picking apart little bits. First and foremost, um, rascal is the nicest term that I've ever heard the, the, the <laughs> behavior of Constantine put. Believe so, me, as an Australian, I could come up with much worse words, but I'm not sure whether they fall within the style guide of the podcast. We are, um, so... In in, de in deference both to your to your work and to the listeners, I will just say on record that we are we are we have earned our explicit rating because we've talked to a lot of comedians um, as well. <laughs> uh, but so so um, so so feel no feel no impetus for, towards censure um, on on the side of the the listening audience. Well, yeah, my never mind. Anyway, <laughs> but um, but um, so so I I love that. I'm going to remember that. Um, number one, um, I, I would like to lean in a little bit more about the, the thoughts of COVID because I, I, uh, I happen to follow you on Instagram and Facebook. Um, I know that even in some of the, the stricter seasons of lockdown, even to just be able to, to do your work, to get back into the country, uh, to in as prestigious an institution as Yale and the Divinity School, um, and, and you having, having had such a, a career here, um, that, that that was not easy. No, it wasn't. And I'm, sh I'm sure everyone's going to have their COVID story. I mean, I guess it's a little more diffuse than the 9-11, but you know, everyone sure. has a 9-11 story sure. and everyone's going to have a COVID story. Well, my version was that I, I, with my spouse, was on sabbatical in Oxford uh, during the time when COVID came down in March of 2020 and my sort of sabbatical got cut in half because at the same time, the United States said, well, we're not going to welcome non-US citizens coming from European ports, that included me. And at the same time, Australia, my home on the other side of the world, basically sent out the call to the wild geese saying, come home now because we're going to close our borders. And at the very same time, my father had fallen ill. And so we decamped from Oxford and we went to Australia and spent the next five months or so there, which um, w was a, a really interesting, if difficult time in many respects. For me, the, the, what happened was that, I, another way of putting this is that both of us got to unlock every you know, middle-aged person's dream. You go back and live with your parents for five months, right? You know, <laughs> is that an ambition you've got? People, are you listeners? Um, but in my case, it was uh, a hidden blessing because my father had fallen ill. I was able to go and be with my, my you know, relatively aged parents for that period of time. Sure. And um, my father died uh, after the time I was with them, but I'd had a period of you know, intimate domestic connection with them, unlike anything I'd had you know, since my 20s. And um, it was a great gift when about a year after that, um, a bit more than a year after that period that he died, that I had been able to engage closely with him and, and with my mother in a way that um, 
you know, still still strikes me as well, not without its struggles, was was absolutely a gift. I didn't get to write the book my sabbatical was supposed to come up with. Um, I did write uh, a smaller book on the seven last words of Jesus from the cross, which was mm -hmm. based on some sermons I'd done a few years earlier. But I wrote seven new sermons that were sort of what shall I say, fictive sermons, sermons that I'd never delivered, but which were a kind of a a second set from the cross. And I suppose living with my father's obvious impending mortality, you know, as a part of my daily life, made that a kind of a potent, yeah. potent exercise. And then, yes, it wasn't the easiest thing to get back, not so much because of what the United States was doing in that instance, but because Australia had closed its borders in a quite radical way and managed COVID for a year and a half, effectively by just sort of stopping movement in and out of the country. Um, there were occasional flights. We did get one back um, in August of, of 2020, just in time to pick up the threads of, of resuming the deanship here uh, at that time. But it was it was quite challenging to sort of be someone who needed to move to different parts of the world when, uh, you know, listeners will remember how challenging it sometimes was to move around the block or go to the grocery store and, and all that kind of thing. Yes. When I came back from my sort of enforced exile in Australia in 2020, we began a year that was completely on Zoom. I mean, the university was very clear cut about how this was going to work for us. We simply didn't meet. Uh, I didn't go into my office a few steps from here more than once in that year. Um, locks were changed. You know, it was quite radical. Our, our existence became virtual. And so the students who arrived during that year had a, a completely online experience, in many of them not having met one another, some of them still remaining in whatever geographical location they'd been prior to yeah. theoretically becoming Yale students. Um, that year was, was a, a very challenging one for them and, and for all of us, uh, just as I, I'm sure that others who were not involved in education had experiences of, you know, exhaustion as well as, you know, in, in many cases, of course, of, of illness and other struggles. But I was sitting with the third year group of students of the current moment, who are the people who came in as that entering cohort in the 2020 year, just and just a few weeks ago, one of them said, in in a a very thoughtful and and reflective conversation, "Look how far we've come. We used to be just Zoom schools, <laughs> <laughs> and now here we are." Did yeah. you ever get your your Zoom background to the perfect look? What what does what does Andrew McGowan's Zoom background look like? That was interesting. I, I had a few different approaches. I don't think I ever quite were satisfied. In after, <laughs> after I left Oxford, when my sabbatical came yeah. tumbling down, from that period through uh, through August, when I was sort of taking meetings back on this side of the world, but before I could be here, I sort of wistfully had a slide up that was the Bodleian Library at Oxford. I was still sort of trying to sort of do the wistful thing about all those books, all those books you're not letting me read. Um, and then uh, when I came back, I, I, I have a study. I'm blessed with uh, a comfortable and capacious deanery apartment at right. the Berkeley Center, not right. far from here. But I've had a study there, which honestly, to, up to that point, for you know six years, I had barely inhabited except as a place to store things. I, I, I got it set up properly yeah. and um, I, I went to Ikea, you know, I, yes, I, 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 I bought one of those sort of sets of uh, bookshelves that I could actually sort of put one next to another next to another sort of almost up to the ceiling and sort of bolt them carefully and arrange books so that when I had uh, an appointment that, that had some 
particular need for me to project decanal and professorial sort of persona, <laughs> I, I would I would sit in front of those books, uh, you know, on a on a stool with a with a computer in in front of me. And then I had a, another one which was slightly lower when I was speaking to people. And then I had the desk, you know, which was just looking out on a few different books. So I actually moved around the room yeah. depending on who I was speaking to and what mood I was in. So you, I, you, you know, were this close. You were this close to becoming a YouTuber. <laughs> almost, almost. Another <laughs> another missed vocation, <laughs> along with that of bread baker. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but those were those were interesting times. I, um, I I think I can now say that I'm grateful for them in certain respects. But I it. it I feel myself sort of digging deep to have to say that. I, I know that there are things that I yeah. learned from that time for which I, I should be grateful, but um, it was very taxing. It was taxing yeah. for ev everyone, of course. Um, in the educational environment, uh, when, when you're a teacher, um, you, you know, not every student may feel this, but the, but the teacher relies on a certain degree of empathy and care for the student, yeah. which in a theological context is also a prayerful um, one and you know you you are in some respects uh, seeking to share the burdens of, of students as well and so that that is something for which uh, resilience and faith are are important and it and it taught me things that I would rather not have had to learn but nevertheless it taught me things so I, I, I acknowledge my gratitude without thereby implying that I would like to go back and do it again <laughs> among other things uh, the the keyboard shortcuts for the the mute function. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> did, uh, did anyone actually publish the liturgy that 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 said you know the Lord be with you? Uh, answered John, you're on mute. You know something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's there were so many little rituals like that, weren't there? The 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 the, the keystrokes and the, uh, the the button pressing and so forth. Yeah. I was waiting. I was waiting for Almi or Holy Rood to come out with a Dalmatic that had just on the back, of, on the front and the back, um, "You're on mute." Yeah. <laughs> Turn your video on. <laughs> right, right. And of course, it would only have had to come down to the waist, <laughs> because that that was one of the glories of that time was you know not having to get dressed beyond yes. what people would see. Um, so uh, th that there, there were these sort of small advantages you had to look for. And another ad advantage, I'll say, since food is one of our themes, yeah. is that um, I got to the point where I realized that since um, I had to find different ways of doing grocery shopping, uh, that I decided I would find different ways of doing grocery shopping. That is to say, I identified three or four online sources of ingredients that I was not going to find in Stop and Shop and decided that I would not restrict myself to whatever Stop and Shop had because I couldn't really use them properly anyway. So The local big box store. Uh, right. Well, so I, had, I now have two suppliers of Japanese uh, ingredients, for instance, which are just a, a wonderful. Uh, two others that have sort of specialists um, from different European sources and so forth. And my pantry is better stocked than it has ever been yeah. because rather than, oh, well, I've got that particular bean or pulse or grain because I happened to go to the right store two weeks ago. I just have them all. Um, so this is, uh, this, there's a curious and interesting byproduct of that, that, that I've decided not to make myself quite so much of a victim to, to whatever middle America is telling me that I should be able to buy, you know, here in, here in Connecticut. But yes, um, food is, the, 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 way, the ways that we eat are less determined by our personal choices than we might think. 
Um, I'd love to do a quick sort of either or speed round. Um, coffee or tea? Oh, coffee. Um, this this might be this might be an insensitive question, but regular or decaf? Oh, regular. I mean, in each case, by the way, there's a footnote about the tea and the decaf and when and how and under what circumstances. And yet, I can still be quite, uh, if you if you'll pardon me, doing Myers Briggs for a minute. You know, I'm quite jay about most of these things. You know, I I know where I stand. Yeah. Very very good. Drilling down a little bit more on coffee when you're not making it home. Yeah. Uh, blue state or fussy coffee? Oh, interesting. Fussy for sure. But you know, blue state is a a Connecticut institution. But we've just had the devastating news that they're closing three of the four yes. New Haven venues. So, blue state. When you say that, even though I don't think they're quite in the same category as fussy or the coffee peddler over on State Street. Those are yes, my two favourites, by the way. Yes. Um, but Blue State I regard as a solid citizen of the coffee world. You know, you know what you're going to get, it's reliable and, and so forth. And I'm not a coffee snob. I know the things I prefer, but my coffee preferences work more by way of a hierarchy of values rather than by a refusal of things that are further down. I will drink Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Um, what you, you raised it, so I'll ask, what are the circumstances under which Duncan is the, the right choice? It's funny, it's sometimes it's the day of the week or the place where one is. If you're on the road, for instance. Yes, of you course. Know, and, and then I have to say that just as um, context determines a lot of how flavor works, I think, I'm using flavor, obviously, in a, a somewhat loose sense. Yes. But, you know, the same food can taste good under one set of circumstances and less good under another, I think. Yes. You know, um, necessity is a driver of taste. Um, Gandhi said the mind is the seat of taste and I think that's an interesting insight um, that um, to have a Dunkin Donuts coffee when you're on a road trip to somewhere you want to go to yeah. is, is an enjoyable addition to the experience for me or even if it's in a place you don't want to go to it can be a kind of solace yeah. on the journey because some of the associations are, are things that I find sort of comforting and encouraging even though a coffee in some sort of very specific isolated sense would not necessarily be what I'd choose. So there are other foods like that, aren't there? I think, you know, foods that have associations from childhood, for instance, are not always the things that we would choose from a menu. And yet the associations that we have with them can make them things that we, we can learn to be thankful for again. And I think learning to be thankful for foods, whether or not they're necessarily the top of the sort of, you know, gourmet exoticism tree, yeah. it's not a bad thing to be thankful for things. Um, this is a three-part question. Is there a difference between brunch and brekkie? If so, what is it? And which would you prefer? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I was reading some stuff in in on, I think even it might have been in the New York Times recently, but certainly in some media source about brunch and uh, both the way restaurant critics and servers and cooks are all frustrated and hate the idea of brunch. I must admit, brunch is still a bit of a mystery to me. Um, <laughs> you know, when I go to places and I realize it's the brunch menu, which must mean what? It's a weekend morning, but before two o'clock or something. And usually and, involving vodka. Oh, it's right. The, these these sort of uh, very particular alcoholic drinks. So a mimosa or a, a Bloody Mary, yeah, right? Those are the. Yeah. Two, are the am I right in thinking those are the two most obvious things? I but think that's see, right. The fact that I'm asking you the question back indicates that I feel that it's not really one of the culinary sort of spheres of influence that I've quite penetrated in a way that, that makes gives me any sort of expertise. I feel that I'm trying to tiptoe around the edges of brunch and not make yeah. some sort of error of etiquette when I make the choice. Now I like some of the things on offer. I, I do, you know, we, we were talking about Hollandaise earlier. I, I do like an Eggs Benedict and, yeah. and some of those things. Um, 
but part of your question was, is it the same as brekkie? And the answer is no for me. Now, um, this doesn't mean to say that one couldn't identify objectively certain points of overlap. Sure, In of fact, course, um, uh, you and I were talking, I think, before we came online about the, the breakfast I enjoy cooking on Saturdays, which involves poached eggs and my own bread turned into toast. And that's definitely brekkie. And of course, poached eggs on toast could be part of a brunch menu as well, but there are no mimosas at my place at that time in the morning. <laughs> We're still hard into the coffee at that stage. So, yes, indeed. So it's partly it's the time of day you have it, but partly there, there is some sort of, clearly some sort of mindset around brunch that I feel still lies somewhat beyond my ken. Mm, very good. Um, thank you, for, thank you for, for indulging me in the speed round. Um, We've got just time for a couple more questions. Um, one of the common themes of of the show is the work of of keeping going, keeping on. Yeah. Um, certainly, it seems like for for you, given given the international challenges you've experienced, given the the readaptations to um, to, to teaching and, and how how I imagine students' experiences are different and and the the general psyche of the experience of working in higher ed is different mm -hmm. and, and certainly what I imagine must have been a challenge a challenging domestic time among family mm. um, that seems like a lot to bear um, I wonder what what sorts of little things help keep keep the spirit buoyed, mm -hmm. help, help tend, tend the wellspring, or as yeah. guess of, former guest Shane Claiborne says, what helps tend the garden? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll give you two examples. Sure. Uh, one is that I, I have the privilege as part of a seminary community of the daily offices, and I don't think I've ever felt more clearly in, in a personal and experiential and existential sense the value of the rhythm of daily communal prayer. Um, and of course, I, you know, there are many former seminarians out there, some of them may be listening to this, who probably have that experience where, you know, I really hated it at the time, but I came to appreciate it after I left because, you know, getting up at 7.30 and different, different people have different experiences of that. I, I of course, uh, am always having to be the, the chief booster, the cheerleader of the daily office because I'm the dean. But I think that my personal experience of just knowing that there was that group of people, even when it was online, that group of people to do this with at the same time of day and that they would all be praying and that I would be there and even in the moments when I was being distracted by what went on in the chat or by what was going on on the other side of the world that I would still be a part of this structural community of prayer. So it, it took on a new kind of structural significance for me and we could interpret that probably at at least two levels. You know, one is just the level of the theology of prayer and community and, and the, the body of Christ doing its thing. The other that, that's more prosaic but not trivial is the fact that I think routine is one of the things that does help with, with some of those things. At least routines that you feel that you've signed on for, routines yeah. that you've chosen. I'm not sure that inflicted routines are necessarily so helpful re for resilience. But I do think that, that some people learn more about how structure is, is something that helps. You know, you're not sure how you get through the day, that's okay, just look for the next landmark, you know, the next thing you're headed towards. That's one example. Another I use sort of both lightheartedly but with a certain profundity is uh, my bread making practice, yeah. which I yeah. continue to work on. I, I did a great course in the UK um, in June this year. I'm, I'm continuing, I continue to see myself as an advanced beginner, even though the people upon whom I thrust my extra loaves sort of look at it and say, wow, you're an amazing baker. But, you know, um, 
when it's something you care about, you, you spend more time thinking about how little you know and how much you have to learn than about whether or not it, things are right. But the, the thing I was going to say about bread baking is that in contrast to education or even perhaps to the life of the spirit, it is a rare thing with education that you really get to say in the course of a day or a week or even a year, wow, we've sort of done something that which has been transformative for somebody's life. I think that education is a difficult thing to measure because it's actually the long durée. You know, it's years that it takes for whatever the seeds you sow in the field of educational work take a long time to prosper. It is often so moving and, um, yeah, I'll just say moving when a student circles back and says, you know, there was something you said or something you did or an experience I had here that has really made a difference to me and I just wanted to tell you so. You know, those are the things that, that move you to tears. Yeah. But you know something about a loaf of bread that's different? You can get it done within about a day. And in a day, you know, and you look at something and you say, I did this, I achieved this. So the, the bread, on the one hand, is lightheartedly, here's something that I managed to achieve. Yes. But it's yes. also a kind of a sacrament of the fact that things take effort yeah. to achieve. And the sort of sourdough baking I do is, is a bit less instant than some other forms of bread making. It really does take me more than a day to produce something that I want. And so there's both a reminder of the fact that, yes, things things do get created and, and things do emerge as, as gift uh, from the effort that one puts in. And sometimes you need small things where you can see the achievement yes. more yes. immediately to deal with the fact that the rest of what you're doing, even though you go ahead in faith, yes. is, is not always the thing that you're going to see the harvest of. I will never ever begrudge someone a good savory scone or uh, an, a soda loaf. No, absolutely. Even uh, because they 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 are the uh, the instant gratification of the bread world. But um, <laughs> but but, they, but but no, absolutely. Things things that work a bit faster, but things which have um, inherent uh, virtue. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, we're coming to the end of our time, so I have just one question left for you. The question that we ask all of our guests to wrap up the time. What do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? Wow, yeah. Well, I, I'd, <laughs> you, in, in the moment that we live, the first thing we want to say is that I'd still like it to be here. Um, because yeah. these, yeah. these feel, we're, we're in the sort of season of the year when we're speaking when apocalyptic things appear in the lectionary and so forth. So, and chats, so, chats uh, are happening right now at COP27 right. back in Egypt. Right, right. So um, like many others who you're talking to, I, um, I'm concerned about climate crisis in a way that isn't just one of, you know, moral indignation. I'm, I'm, I'm perplexed and concerned that we're, we're sort of getting past the point that we can really sort of hold off some of the terrible things that are going to be consequences for, um, for climate change. We seem, if anything, to be less politically well equipped to deal with them than we were 10 years ago when we could have done more. Um, but I, uh, the, the world towards which I look, which may honestly be a, another case of what I was saying about education, something that other people get to harvest rather than me, will of course be one in which uh, there is a, a, a deeper realization of human interdependence and a deeper realization of human interdependence with the rest of our natural environment in which we would think about our future as something that we share, as something that we're kind of trying to steward for the people who will be here to harvest things we plant. Our, our news cycle and our obsession with entertaining ourselves and distracting ourselves uh, turns us away from the possibility that there are things worth doing that take longer than a day or a year or a four-year electoral cycle to achieve. 
I'd love to find, uh, to leave a world where uh, I doubt that I will have harvested the things I want to, but where some of the things that I've sown will give rise to people who will continue that work of sowing and planting and harvesting. Well said. Thank you so much for chatting to me today. Paulie, it's been great to see you and thank you for the conversation. My thanks to the very Reverend Dean Andrew McGowan. To learn more about his work at Berkeley Divinity School at Yale, you can check out their website. You can follow him on Instagram. You can check out his Substack, and you can follow Berkeley Divinity School on Instagram. Thank you so much for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia on the unceded land of the Lenny Lenape tribe and the Black Bottom community. Our associate producers are Willa Jaffe and Kia Watkins. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed caption video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good.